Welcome everyone to New Polities Podcast. Just a reminder, we are a magazine. So if you have not subscribed, please subscribe now to get some of the best thinking and really, I think some of the most radical thinking out there these days. Today, another episode of Good Cities. I'm here with our hosts, Nathan Bird and Jacob Hyman. Boys, I'm very excited because today, really communally, communally we've all been given leeway to get mad about cars. And we're going to try not to make it too self-indulgent for you. Yes. Mm. Um, it's going to be hard. Because, we'll because there's, a, there's a thin line, really, between the successful podcast and the unhinged rant. Uh, and we want to <laughs> approach it, but not Just cross it. Just on this yes. side. Mm. Okay. So, all of this being said, why are we talking about cars? Well, it seems that there is no discussion of the city, especially of the American city, that does not take as its starting point the car as a detrimental object, as a technology that makes all of our dreams of a beautiful city, of a walkable city, of an affordable city for the poor, of a neighborly city, makes all these dreams difficult to attain and sometimes nigh impossible where nothing but the grace of God really seems to be um, effective in, in getting us the kind of city that mirrors the heavenly Jerusalem as we've discussed. And so, I don't know how roads will do on those, uh, or cars will do on those roads of gold. Roads of gold in heavenly Jerusalem. That's right. Now, um, so we need to seriously discuss what has happened to human life now that transportation is achieved through the purchase of a capital intensive machine that burns dinosaur oil. We need to understand this as a radical movement within human life that has spiritual and material consequences from everything to the invention of the internet to um, making it harder to drink. And so <laughs> while we discuss these things, it's, it's easy, I think, um, to get kind of moralistic in a sense and to begin to condemn the technology as such. Mm-hmm. Now, this is problematic for Catholics to engage in because any kind of blanket condemnation of anything, artifact or natural, um, can begin to make us look a little like dualists, like Manichaeans, as if in this good order that God created, there was some way of us taking those raw materials, ordering them in such a way, and creating a sort of pure evil. I don't think this is possible. I think Mm. in technology... There's always a good. There's a good of the creative order, and there's a good of the human will and the human uh, human ingenuity in its creation. And so we can say, without fear of contradiction, that there is something quite good about the car, while at the same time saying there is no necessity on the basis of that good to build our world in its image and to submit to its capacities over and against every other form of life, the mm-hmm. forms of walking, uh, for instance. <clears throat> so... As a rough beginning, I want to pitch a book, okay? This is a wonderful book. I wish New Polity Press had published this book because then this pitch would be financially beneficial (laughs) as well as intellectually beneficial. Uh, But as it stands, we did not publish this. Why We Drive by Matthew Crawford, one of the best thinkers out there. You might know him for his book, Shop Class as Soulcraft. If you want a defense of the car, I think it doesn't really get better than this, okay? And what Matthew Crawford says is that the car has created the capacity for the development of certain virtues, Mm. right? It has become, and I think this is true, a source of human perfection. 
and a source of virtue in the sense of when you're in the car, you enter into a shared space, into a certain kind of communal experience where everyone's life is on the line. And you, in hopefully some fear and trembling, operate a, a deadly vehicle and try to be what Pope Francis called the drivers of Rome. Uh, he called them artisans of the common good, mm. right? You drive and you act in such a way that you prudentially determine um, the, the layout and the look of your city um, by obeying certain customs of driving and trying to be a really good driver. And so there is something here, mm -hmm. absolutely. There's also something to be said that if given the fact that we have made the world in the image of the car, Matthew Crawford's book is a wonderful critique that we don't go further down the road of automation. Pun intended. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. That, well, I, and this is itself, not that we're going to go down this road, oh. but it is itself a stroke. indicative of the dominance of our of the automobile of our culture in that all forms of discussion of progress towards the ideal city are themselves driven by metaphors of driving. We drive forward, we move forward, we either kick the can down the road or we move further along the road. We put on the brakes, we get the green light. I mean, these things are a very almost religious um, uh, litany, as it were, of, of uh, car terms. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's totally surpassed sport metaphors within the political scene. Okay, but why we drive is the best case for a kind of driving that willingly takes ownership of a vehicle, learns to fix vehicles, learns to know the mechanics, as it were, from the inside, as opposed to simply being a sort of passive consumer who develops no virtue in being shuttled around by mere GPS directions and ultimately by self-driving cars. Okay, there you go. So now you know, I think, that we're not nutcases who just <laughs> hate getting behind the wheel, okay? Cars are fun, cars are rad. And in fact, I think it's precisely because cars are so fun that we can cast shade on developing cars in there, uh, developing the world in the image of the car. Mm -hmm. Because nothing is fun when it is required, imposed, <laughs> and it's imposed when it becomes necessary. It's like, for instance, if someone were to say, I, I remember getting the Game Boy Advance, huge for me, the Game Boy Advance. But if it had been the case that food was only accruable by me through the operation of a Game Boy Advance, if it was the case that the only way I was going to successfully get a job, if the only way I was going to be able to get to the funeral of a friend was through the operation of a Game Boy Advance, the thing would take on a cloudish character, seems to me. It would not be as cool as playing uh, Metroid Fusion at mm. the age of 13, where it really had the sense of like, um, it has nothing to do with the way the whole world is ordered. It's just an yeah. experience of the thing itself. So cars can go fast. Cars um, can do incredible things. I mean, um, we're not allowed to do most of them. Right. And this, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Closed course. course professional driver, do yes. not attempt. <laughs> do not attempt the car commercials that you see. But what I like to imagine is something like this. If we were to take the kind of critique that we're about to give, it would not lead to the destruction of the automobile as such, but its liberation as something fun and something that 
attains goods within a human community that is otherwise okay without the car Mm -hmm. that are surprising and wonderful and could not have been attained otherwise. Mm -hmm. The car will find its place. So it's really in, in love of driving and of the car that we don't want it to be the kind of boring necessity that it has become Mm -hmm. when it really as a piece of human ingenuity, I mean, the engine is just, it's incredible. Like I, I almost refuse to believe that we are able to propel ourselves on the basis of explosions, <laughs> uh, but we are, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So there, having successfully, I hope, uh, deterred any argument that we're just a bunch of Amish sort of hacks, um, we are true lovers of the automobile, and precisely because we love it, we want to use it much, much less. Mm-hmm. Now, Nathan Bird, um, I want to know a little more about the way the automobile became not a technology available for use, but a life form. Mm-hmm. It certainly has. Um, and I want to know a little of the history. Yeah, I mean, it has become a, a kind of self-perpetuating system that exists simply to grow and grow in, it, in its own ends. Um, and I want to contextualize all of this and pull it back to, to good cities as a whole and just remember, you know, we're talking about this in the context of trying to decide how, how cities can become a place where we experience the fullness of human life, as, as we find in De Regno. Wow, sorry, that's in uh, Aquinas' commentary on politics. It says yeah. cities are where we find the fullness of human life. And... The car is one of those things that promises some of that freedom that is so necessary to the fullness of human life. But in promising that freedom, it actually destroys the physical and social necessities of community, the community that actually provides that freedom, the freedom to live together in virtue. And so where I want to start, and it's not at the very beginning, but start in the 20s when Henry Ford is first rolling out the Model T and starting to find new markets Mm -hmm. for this vehicle. And early on, the the early adopters of the automobile are not, uh, you know, middle class office workers who need to commute because that didn't really exist yet. The early adopters are rich people who want fancy toys and they want to be able to drive fast and, and actually, you know, use the car to its full potential for freedom and enjoyment. Totally. I never thought I'd be on the side of just the, the, <laughs> the side of the rich. Well, not just the rich, but like, like the landed idle vacationer. But like, yeah. as you do more and more of a critique, it's like, no, actually the guys that just wanted to go fast and probably ended up killing themselves before anyone else really knew how to <laughs> knew it. They well, knew there's the something, there's they something to that state in life. And I think the idea of the aristocracy is, is one of, showing the other classes like how to live a life of leisure and contemplation. Yes. And part of that is finding these new ways yes. to do crazy things. Yes. No, and some right. of those things end up being, uh, you know, new forms of art, new forms of music yes. that can then be picked up by everybody else and, and taken to their full potential. Um, so we're not really going to talk as much about them. What I, what I really want to talk about is the other class of people that found a use for the automobile, or at least Henry Ford found a use for them for the automobile, uh, farmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a lot of this that goes back into the history of how American communities were were planned or or actually not really planned. Farming communities were dispersed and individualized rather than consolidated and oriented towards community. Um, you know, historically, you would find small settlements that were tightly knit and the farmland would be kind of on the exterior. But the way the, the American frontier was settled was you would have these very isolated homesteads that were miles and miles apart from one another. And you would really only see other people on, on Sundays, uh, if that. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of writing that, that actually says the, the American farmer was was horribly undereducated in matters of religion. Um, and so Henry started selling the car and then later the tractor to these farmers. And it was, it was eye-opening for them because all of a sudden they could drive into town mm -hmm. on Saturday and enjoy the good of community. I mean, that's a good thing. They were suddenly opened to this idea that, hey, I don't just have to work on my farm and, and never see anybody but my family. I now have the means to more frequently go into town and enjoy the company of others. And piggybacking off of that, they also used the car as a generator. The, the initial Model T actually acted as kind of a generator on wheels, and you could use that engine to power the wheels and drive around, or you could use it to power all sorts of farming equipment. And, and eventually they moved from kind of using the, the car as that generator to using the tractor, mm -hmm. which was more purpose-built. But what you see is as the internal combustion engine becomes one of the core facets of life on the farm, you see the shift from agriculture to agribusiness. You see farmers needing to produce more and more to make payments on these pieces of machinery. You know, they're expensive, yeah. relatively speaking. So they're, they're making an expenditure of capital to buy these machines yep. or, or lease them or rent them. And it's, pulling them into this system of money mm -hmm. as the key, I guess, seed for everything that's being well, done. Really, the, the, the reason for farming itself, which already was um, being shifted away from subsistence um, historically, became acquiring cash. I mean, this is something right. people don't appreciate about industrialism generally is they sometimes imagine it's easy to imagine that people just kind of woke up and got excited about mass production mm -hmm. and about uh, scaling everything beyond visible human scales and about exporting and all of these things uh, there's something to it in the sense that the philosophy of, of liberalism did lend itself to this but one of the really practical things is it's very expensive to buy a big machine yes. whether that's a factory or a car mm -hmm. So you start out any venture in debt. Now we're norm now at this point we're extremely used to this. This is just the way you start a business. But the point is when you start out under the conditions of massive debt, then expansion and production become and what what would to an earlier age be overproduction uh, begin to become necessary. Mm -hmm. At least they feel very necessary because you have to pay not just for a life, not just for um, subsistence and then the support of a community, but for heavy machinery. Right. And so the introduction of the internal combustion engine to the farm had a few different direct impacts. And the first was 
a dependence on a cash economy yeah. rather than on the soil itself. It made production a lot easier. It really did have a, an overwhelming effect on the amount of produce, um, you know, double, triple yields. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the corollary to that is because you're now using a machine rather than livestock to power most of your heavy labor, you're losing the naturally sourced fertilizer that comes from using work animals. Yes, cars don't poop. Exactly. So you're having to, you're seeing an, a new, you're seeing a new dependency on inputs to the farm. And the Darties have talked about this, trying to reduce your inputs on the farm to yes. become a, a truly self-sustainable homestead. But the introduction of the car, while making things much easier on the farm and, and you know, doubling and tripling the production, created the need for these inputs. It created the need for gasoline mm -hmm. to be input on the farm. And it created the need eventually for fertilizer mm -hmm. to be input on the farm. At the same time, because the production capacity of the farm was growing so much, it actually ended up having just a terrible impact on the price of what was being produced. Right. And so they're producing more and more and more, which is great if your end is to feed people. Yes you're producing a lot of food. That's awesome. But if your end is to make money to buy the gasoline and the fertilizer, right. now the price of all those commodities has just plummeted because there's three times as much food as there was before. And so you've got the same amount of land, you've got the same farm, but now it's producing usually monocrops yeah. because mechanized labor tends towards monoculture. It's much easier to go, you know, level a field of a single crop with a motor than it is to go hand picking each individual piece of produce, which could be dispersed and working together. Yes. And so basically it's the introduction of, of the cash economy to yeah. the farm. And, yeah. and you've already done several episodes talking about this in depth, so I won't talk about it too much further, but this author, so I'm, I'm pulling most of this from the geography of nowhere, the rise and decline of Americans man-made landscape by James Howard Kunstler and uh, great book, great history of, of cities. And he actually makes the argument that because of the introduction of the car to the farm and it caused the shift to agriculture as a commodity and ultimately reduce began the reduction of topsoil that led to the dust bowl which led to the great depression i mean he links it all together and basically argues from the car being introduced to the farm you can draw a pretty straight line and there's a lot of other factors at play but you can draw a straight line to the great depression yeah yes and it seems like um in some ways there is a parable here or a, a lesson to be learned because the car did serve a need Mm -hmm. that had been created really in the in the sort of founding moves of America. America is very, it's a fascinating place, uh, you may have noticed, because it <laughs> exports its culture throughout the world, um, including the automobile culture. Mm -hmm. But it itself begins unlike any other place in the world, which is sort of constitutionally, uh, through an expansive map gridding private property onto a pre-existing land without real reference to its inhabitants mm -hmm. and, and natural barriers. And so one of the interesting 
phenomena of modernity is when we talk about the Americanization of the world, we indicate the spreading out of a, essentially an unreal system um, through the spreading of a, a, the American empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a way in which you feel sad for the farmers because the truth is they were already in a sort of unnatural position. Yes. This isn't quite the sort of deliberate conniving need creation of the ad man that you'll see after world war one, when Henry Ford is looking at it, people really are isolated. I think immediately of Wendell Berry who, um, in his very reasonable desire for distance from a lot of the machines that characterize modern farming still said, I cannot conceive of a way of living as a farmer without an automobile. Um, so the nece- like both the need and the necessity now of the automobile are real. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, Im- no one is making up uh, the needs. Sometimes when you talk about the creation of needs, people are like, well, it means that you were like lazy and, and didn't really need something. It's like, no, as you mentioned, community is a good that was lacking by virtue of uh homesteads and large-scale farming operations that were beyond human scale uh, from the beginning because yeah. of the way that land was claimed during the westward expansion period of American history. And, and it's a classic example of trying to use a, a technological solution for what is really a societal problem. Well, really a technological problem. I mean, it was, we don't need to go down this road, but it, the problem was created by the technology of mapping right. uh, and centrally planning uh, and you land use ownership. one technology to reduce the exactly. ill yeah. impacts of the, the previous technology yeah. and so on and, and so forth, rather it. than going at, at the root. Yeah. Okay, so this makes sense how the car kind of insinuated itself um, within American life. What happens then? So you have these two classes, and, and at the same time that the, the farm is being induced to take on all of these inputs and yeah. enter into the cash economy. You're also seeing the transformation of the city for this early adopted class. You know, these are people who are rich and powerful in their cities and, and generally kind of the, you know, the patriarchs of these cities. And so yeah. they have a lot of influence to then change the cities to accommodate their new ways of getting around. And so yeah. you see this, you talked about it briefly on an episode with the Darties, but the introduction of jaywalking laws yeah. in the twenties where we have people who are driving around and for, for millennia roads had been for people to walk on mm-hmm. or drive their carts at, at most. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're seeing now is the introduction of this new vehicle that can go extremely fast and it's extremely heavy and they want to be able to go fast. But you can't go fast when there's a bunch of people trying to walk across the street. And so they say, you know what? We're going to limit the freedom of the pedestrian. You can't walk from this business to that business across the street. You have to go down the block to the intersection, across the crosswalk, and back down uh, in order to stay out of our way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you get the introduction of of jaywalking. Which is really a breathtaking moment in American history because it could have gone another way. Typically, law coming from the Catholic tradition is going to prioritize the weak. Um, we talk about the preferential option for the poor as a mm-hmm. principle and really any kind of social activity. 
but the basic principle is that between a person driving a ginormous deadly vehicle and someone on his foot, the law should be utilized to protect the weak in that mm-hmm. scenario. Um, and it went quite the other way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one I imagine is particularly surprised by this. What the law used to protect the powerful <laughs> for and against the needs of the weak? Well, sure, we see it all the time. And it's classic. It's a classic tyrannical use uh, of the law, which is such a which otherwise could be such a good. But I do think it was a moment that did not have to happen. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the expansion of the vehicle, it's sort of full of these moments where um, it things that feel inevitable, I think feel inevitable because of the weight of history. It's like, well, look, here we are. Everything's, you know, the car came and now we can only use a car. And so the car must have been an inevitable progress within a line of technological <laughs> progress that began with the wheel and now has ended in the, I don't know, Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're playing um, Xbox on that now. Whoa. Yeah. But this is not the case, of course. Um, the truth is that this would be pretty much unimaginable within a world in which people weren't trying to enrich themselves um, at the extent that they were. Mm-hmm. What I mean is we kind of take as our presumption that if there's a technolo- there, if there's a technological innovation that it is profiting someone in their quest for private uh, gain, which is certainly true of the automobile. I mean, but the very fact of having a society in which people like Henry Ford look around and say, like, I've invented something, and so now it's sort of natural for me to look for ways in which this thing I've invented should be purchased by everyone, Mm -hmm. that's a novelty in human history, you know? I often use the example of of windmills within Christendom. It's like people invented windmills, but there was no place for someone that then became the windmill maker. Like (laughs) there was no place for someone to go advertise the windmill to other towns. If you look at the expansion of the windmill, it just happened through imitation. I mean, people saw it, they saw its use. And so you can geographically track windmills spreading across Europe. Um, This comes from the assumption that there really are needs that are met and that technological progress is driven by the actual meeting of needs Mm -hmm. um, and and community decisions, not about the technology itself providing some kind of historical leap forward in time, which means that it's, it becomes necessary. It's like, well, if, if, if time is just a marker of technological progress, then the one who invents the next technology has a certain right, as it were, to that technology proliferating all over the earth because he's sort of found the next step within history almost. Okay, so the point is there's a lot more going on than just the necessities that or, or, or the, the needs that the car met. It's also doing so within a society that's pretty primed to look at every technological innovation as sort of bearing within itself mm-hmm. a right to total expansion. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's And so then from there... We move into World War Two, yeah, and the spinning up of this just massive industrial capacity of the United States to fund the war effort, yeah, to produce the planes and jeeps and guns and yep. bombs and everything that's needed to wage a war. Uh, a huge increase in the production capacity of the states, and then after the war. We were one of the only countries that that production capacity had remained yeah, virtually had untouched. Yeah. We hadn't been bombed to pieces like most of Europe. Yeah. And so we have this huge production capacity that's now looking for an outlet. Yes. And all Which, of, again, didn't have to be looking for an outlet. 
but right people could have returned to, <laughs> yeah. to whatever happened before but women but, stayed yeah. in the workforce so we had our increased um workforce labor capacity mm -hmm. uh, as well as all of the Cincinnatus yeah. did not go back to his farm no that's right <laughs> that's right um yes and so there is there is a sort of you know we have the product now let's find a place to put it right mm -hmm. and, uh, there, there's an element of that and then there's also an element that, of um there's a story about Eisenhower during the war being very upset with the the lack of infrastructure to move troops around. Mm -hmm. The trains were usually uh, late or waylaid in some way. Um, and And he came back to the states and thought, for the national defense, we need to have this this national highway network. And it this gets overblown a little bit. People talk about it as if it were just an issue of defense. He also really kind of wanted it for transportation uh, and and for, for cars. He, yeah. It was just part of that was the idea that we need to be able to get all around the United States with yeah. a national highway system to move troops around, to move airplanes. Now you have runways literally scattered across the states. I yes. mean, every highway can basically be used as a runway. Yeah. Um, and what what that does? I don't, do you want to talk more about the Federal Highway Act, or do you want to just talk about what it did? <laughs> well, I mean, there's there is a certain coercive mm -hmm. mechanism in place here, where it also uh, consolidated federal power, which obviously already was at probably its most massive proportions to date. Yeah. So it's not really a, a new trend, but basically, states were kind of strong armed into um, making way for highways um, because it became attached to the funding right. uh, from the federal government. And so it was like everyone chose to do it, right. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the impact that you actually see this having on cities physically and historically is that, first of all, for some strange reason that I still don't quite understand the history behind this, Jacob, maybe you do a little bit better, but... Uh, it was decided that the highways actually needed to go through the cities that they were serving. And this is not something that was really done historically. And it's not really the way that Europe went about most of their highways. They generally did kind of a ring road mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and maintained the pre-existing grid. Um, but in the U.S., we decided, no, we need to be able to go straight to the heart of downtown with a highway. Yeah. And so that ended up cutting up neighborhoods and creating, I mean, if you ever walked under a highway underpass, it's, it's a immense physical barrier. It is not an enjoyable place to be. Yeah. And so you end up with two neighborhoods that used to be knit together yes. that are now separated by, in some cases, an insurmountable barrier. There yeah. might not even be a way to cross it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if there is a way to cross it, it's not very enjoyable. The other thing it did is it created immense quantities of cheap, cheap land on the outskirts of town, it did very similar to what um, the train tracks were able to do. Is when a train yeah. when a train through goes through West. the American yeah. West, you now are increasing property value because you have yeah. access to it. Same thing with stations. Um, you now have these just channels of concrete that can go out very far to just cheap farmland and develop, um, yeah, develop new communities. But what's important is these are communities that are now being accessed by the car, and so the car really is. Um, the image in which they are designed. Yeah. And so you, within, um, I guess, within history and within urban planning, you have this um, distinction between two types of suburbs, as we refer to them. Um, you have 
perhaps where most people enjoy living in the historic downtowns referred to as streetcar suburbs. So these are much more dense communities that were often made before the Second World War and were linked by that streetcar network that often uh, still exists. The the rails still exist, but have been paved over. Um, but this is in, in contrast to, I think, what we just frequently now called the suburbs, what strong towns would call the suburban experiment, which is this new type of development that's able to, I guess, really capture the heart of America with the American dream post-World War II, not as dense land or not as dense construction on the outskirts of cities that afford everyone their white picket fence, their piece of the American pie, mm -hmm. every man a king, right? And, and that's, that's a really important idea to... I don't want to spend too much time on it on an episode. We'll, we'll talk about it in another episode more in depth, but the idea every man a king or every man a lord is really more than the car at the heart of the suburban experiment. Uh, the early suburbs, especially in America, were seen as ways for more affluent people to get away from the dirt and grime and noise of the cities. And these were heavily industrial cities. I mean, especially in America, because America did not have the history of cities as civic places. Right. They had histories of cities as places of industry. Yeah. Most of, most of American cities are, are, they have their founding as market towns or industrial towns. And so they're not really pleasant places to be. It's not like the, the great plazas of Italy or anything like that, where you have a, a social space. And even then when you do have some type of civic space it's often funded by someone who made their money on industry right uh, like yeah we have the uh who's the library guy rockefeller yeah we got carnegie carnegie, carnegie. <laughs> we, we have a carnegie library here in steubenville yeah you know it's um the civic institutions come after the success of the industry yeah but almost as um, they're kind of backfilled yeah they're they're yeah civic infill in yeah. a certain yeah. backwards sort of way and so the early suburbs were seen as a way to get away and it really was kind of every man a lord it was it, they took their inspiration not from, you know, homesteading or uh, the lord of a, of a castle or anything like that. It was more the sort of enlightenment lords where they had their estates mm. on the outskirts of town surrounded by green lawns that were really just a sign of wealth. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the origin of the lawn is I have so much money that I can afford to let all of this land go f essentially fallow and, and produce nothing but grass to, to play on. And not even grass as pasture, just grass. Right, just grass look. as luxury. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was really the model that was imported for the suburbs on a smaller scale is every person who can afford to live in this suburb can then be a mini lord. Yeah. And that same pattern was then made available. It's kind of the democratization of... Uh, of aristocracy sure. yeah. where now every man can have their little lawn that do, it's not productive. It's just there for leisure, uh, which, which is fine to a certain extent, but if it's what every person is doing and the only thing that's happening, it becomes an issue. And now every man has access to this and it's on a much smaller scale. You know, your, your three bedroom suburban house with white picket fence and a nice little lawn is not going to be the Biltmore mm -hmm. or Versailles, right. but it's, in miniature. Which is very fitting to the American sensibility, which wants aristocracy, but only if no one thinks you're rich. Exactly. You have to pretend everyone is equal while also striving to show off that you're very successful. And this was done within the suburbs, the, you know, the suburban experiment suburbs when they're platted. 
I mean, you can set minimum uh, minimum prices of the housing mm-hmm. to, be, to be sold by. So you're not able to, um, and this is how some of the invisible redlining was sort of done. You don't permit, it's not that you don't permit that group of people to not be able to purchase homes there, but you set a minimum price so that sure. you're really getting a, a homogeny or a, homogenization of class within these areas. But it's important to note that these areas of pure residence um, would not be massively um, successful if it wasn't for them the transportation by the car. Right. The only reason that so many people were able to take part in this kind of democratization of aristocracy was because the highways expanded and what used to be a 30 minute drive down a dirt road or a two hour walk was now a 15 minute drive down a concrete road that was pretty pleasant to drive on at the time because there weren't as many people driving. Um, And that pattern just continued to expand until the car became a necessity to a commuter class moving from the new suburbs to the downtowns that were still kind of the centers of industry and commerce, but they were no longer centers of community life. Sure. It, it was pretty much just a commercial district. You, you see this with, I, I guess, particularly with the, um, the Catholic expansion into the suburbs, because when, at, you know, following World War II, um, Catholics came back to a, a new degree of American acceptability. I mean, this is kind of apotheosis, if that's the word, within you know, later the presidency of um, JFK. Mm-hmm. You now can have a Catholic as president. But this is important to note that a lot of the Western European Catholic immigrants who once lived within the, you know, ethnic ghettos of these, the Italian quarter or the yeah. Polish quarter, now have um, movement of class to be able to then become your suburban neighbor. And this is this is fascinating. This was a talk that came out of the, um, uh, Notre Dame has a real estate conference of church real estate. And there was a guy who spoke about just this past year about that Catholic suburban expansion and how the church following the second world war in the U S was building. Um, because what you had was not this great evangelization effort where suddenly people are becoming more people are becoming Catholic. You need to build more churches, but you have the social mobility Mm. of, um, the ethnic ghetto populations to now move out to the suburbs and you need new churches, you need new schools to service these populations. But not now, because there's a sudden increase of Catholics, but because the, the Catholics movement. are now dispersed over such a wide area, they need new parishes. And now to dioceses serve their new are having to manage twice the amount of infrastructure yeah. with sure new We're seeing the effects with of more that capital because of the social right mobility. Now. But now you um you have the slow abandonment of the inner city parishes because of this. Yeah. Well and it also there's a common thread, which is disintegration here, right? Like if the city, according to Aquinas, is the place where the diverse common circumstances of life um, are all brought into a common flourishing, uh, what we see here now is a sort of disintegrating of this Catholic or, or holistic vision um, where life is lived in one place, commerce is in another place. Mm. And it's interesting, I mean, it makes sense within America that the church which again, at this moment, it could have gone one way or the other. Um, the church chose to associate its life with residence, with uh, essentially the private sphere is what I'm mm-hmm. going to call it, which I think was a spiritual loss within Catholicism. Because whereas before, and you go to cities, it's 
just night and day, like the beauty of the churches in the cities as opposed to the suburbs is astounding. Mm-hmm. That even even within America, where there's a certain, you know, the Catholic might take a certain uh, wry look at the fact that there's usually church street within an American city in which the Catholic faces off the Presbyterians in a sort of battle of the, of the beautiful <laughs> facades. But there was this sense of the spiritual center being public, being mm-hmm. uh, fundamentally, visibly public, drawing all things into itself. Um, and then with the move to suburbanization, it became servicing the residential, the private life of the American people. Because right at the moment that you had suburbanization, you kind of had the cementing of the, I think, the public-private distinction within American life. It's mm-hmm. This is where you start to hear the language of like, you can't legislate morality, you know, you can't dictate what happens in the bedroom, precisely as we're literally creating the spaces where individuals um, are not in obvious community with each other we also begin to idealize it as mm. the place of the spiritual life, as a sort of private affair. Yeah. You have your church, and it's you know built and right outside of your, you your housing development. You don't have Church Street anymore as well, because not not only was the you know there's various movements, global movements within architecture that you know uh, really degraded the look of churches, but I think more um, importantly to what cars did to churches is you now have them surrounded by a sea of parking. No longer is the church situated as the sort of center and hub of a community of life. It's A, separated from the residences, but B... It's privatized. It's now privatized. It's, it's, it's in the middle of just parking, where if you're walking on the sidewalk, you now have to almost enter this no man's land to then walk into the church versus just being able to drive from your residence. And There's then, no sense of invitation no, there's no open door that you can see walking down the street and say, you know, I might stop in and pray for a moment. Yeah, Absolutely. and even um, if you want to, it's just kind of squinting at the door to see if to see if it's open. There's a structural relation then to the way we build churches and to their S- situation in the urban fabric, yeah. as we'd call. Well, it. I just mean like there's a t- tendency within American Catholicism and what passes as uh, traditionalism within America to view the church as a certain. Uh, sacrament reception center as a part, mm. as, a, as opposed to being integrated. Yeah, well, and I mean, it really destroys um, the parish's relationship to the poor mm. because because of the nature of the suburbs. The nature of the suburban development pattern is to create a number of houses that are all roughly equal in price range so that a specific class and you have nicer suburbs and you have cheaper suburbs, but a specific class moves into a neighborhood. And as part of that development pattern, you might build a church kind of near that suburb. But because everybody who surrounds that church is by necessity of the housing price in a similar class, you have removed the poor from the parish. Yeah, yeah. There's no intermingling there's you you have to go out of your way and we see parishes do this all the time i'm not saying that the parishes have stopped serving the poor but the the poor are removed in a way from the daily life of the parish i think it's poor not just in terms of um those disassociated from you in terms of family but um even of blood family you're the poor perhaps being the intergenerational family of aging family members you now have to get around these new developments by car, yeah. which for most people is a 
a sedan of some time. You know, they had station wagons back in the day, but really it was four, you know, four seaters, maybe five if you want to squeeze some people in the back. And so within those ethnic ghettos where you had intergenerational families living together, now the young families who were able to move, move class were able to move out to the suburbs, but you can't fit you know, two, three generations into a sedan. Mm-hmm. And so now you are, um, you need, you need to teach grandma how to drive or if she can't drive. You got to put her into a, you know, assisted living facility mm-hmm. that, um, maybe has its own little chapel and a visiting priest who can come and celebrate mass. Or on as, Sunday. A, as an elderly woman outside of Steubenville told me, Oh, don't worry, honey. I just watch EWTN. <laughs> now we're going to go into more of these cultural critiques, but I want to make sure that we kind of wrap up this historical yeah, yes. nicely. So one thing I want to mention to get us back on that track is that there's also something historically happening that's sort of validating and confirming these very moves. Um, and that's the cold war. Hmm. So what you have as suburbanization is kind of reaching its apex is at the same time, an enemy, a con- common enemy that's the communist, um, in Russia who is characterized by his socialist proclivities, um, as sometimes new polity is wrongly characterized. Anyways, <laughs> moving on. We love socialization. What can I say? <laughs> so one of the things that really confirmed these movements is that they're presented, and there's something to this, but they became kind of blown out of proportion as being presented as the alternative to a collectivist mentality. So the streetcar, the busing system, the train, these things are precisely common technologies in the sense that, yeah, they have a sort of centralized and obviously capital intensive origin story. But at the end of the day, you're getting on the bus, you're getting on the streetcar, you're getting on the train with a bunch of other people. And yeah, there's a little bit of hierarchical stratification, especially on trains, classes, that sort of thing. But you're bumping elbows with most people. Mm -hmm. Okay, now this became a image, as it were, of a, uh, a route down which America should not go. The car provided each American with an individual mode of transportation, confirming them against the collectivist mode of transportation in the communist. The, uh, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Jacob, like the communist sort of building structure was in some ways very horrid. Um, but with the Soviets, they were thinking in terms of cities and in terms of apartments. Um, they're just extremely ugly. <laughs> Very utilitarian. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not a city as a civic center. It's, right. it's a city as a mode of production. And, and it's interesting. I, I want to tug on this a little bit because what I see happening is really the same thing in two different modes. Mm. What you're seeing is the industrialization of cities and the divorcing of people from the land and the artificial stratification of societies through technology. But what you're seeing is that in the USSR, you're seeing it in a kind of top-down, very mechanistic way. And then in the US, you're seeing it done through advertising and markets markets and this idea. Again, selling, selling the idea of freedom while also putting you in servitude to a new technological system. Freedom is just when you're out there obeying the law on the road. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one way to look at it is like, you know, you have the Soviet blocks where it was like, this is going to be the writer's block. This is going to be the artist's block. This, you know, and we're doing the same thing in the suburbs, but it's not like anyone's telling us to do it. It's mm -hmm. like, this is right. literally one homogenous race and class of people who all work at the same part of the city and course, drive in that is day. That is until We're you. not like the Soviets. They live in these blocks of one homogenous people who all have the mm -hmm. same job because yeah. someone told them to do that it. Is, Different you, methods, but ultimately. Until you start to try to build something and then you realize... Oh, we have the separated separated usages within America. Yeah. So it is, it's the same thing as I guess the Soviets, just not as much concrete. And all I mean to say is that the there's a difference in the concrete in being method, used for different things, and there's a difference in aesthetics. Aesthetics, yes. and then but what I want to say is that within this context, America is always very inspired. Every nation state, precisely as a military, um, a military production is motivated by a common enemy. And in the Cold War, you have the sort of peak of uh, American exceptionalism, the identity of Americans. Like the things we did, they weren't just things we were doing, they were ways we were winning. Mm -hmm. You see us driving out to, the, to work, that's because we're Americans, because we're free, unlike those other guys. Right. Now this became basically an, an untenable ad campaign to maintain, like for more than a, it's about a decade where this really kind of had weight. Um, but it was very effective in confirming and giving a sort of spiritual power mm -hmm. to these otherwise very material mm -hmm. and, and very kind of loosely self-interested decisions that we were making. Um, and it kind of, I think, brought us to today. I mean, there's other things that have happened, obviously, but really we seem to be in a holding pattern from the suburban development phase of the American automobile. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that maybe we could maybe kind of end the um, historical analysis here. There's one other historical point okay, I want to get ahead. to. Yeah, but yeah. So, so the, the one other thing we've talked about how the automobile led to the introduction of the cash economy to the farm. It led to cheap land on the outskirts of town that pulled people out of the cities and kind of homogenized our communities. And it led to physical impacts in our cities. You're making room now for roads. You're making room now for parking. You're tearing down whole swaths of historic right. downtown areas to make room for all of these commuters who are coming in and parking their cars. Uh, so you're seeing the physical impacts. You're seeing the economic impacts. Uh, there's another, there's a, a book, and I've not read it yet. I've, I've listened to her speak on several podcasts, but it's called Policing the Open Road, mm. talking about the impact cars had on the growth of the police state in the United States. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, it becomes very obvious very quickly, just not from really a legal rights framework, but just looking at someone driving down the street and saying, you're in a two to 10,000 pound steel cage hurtling down the road at 30 to 80 miles an hour, you could really hurt someone. Mm -hmm. And so there's a new need for a legal framework mm -hmm to keep people in order. And, and it's, it was interesting in that this new need for legal oversight applied now to almost everybody. Uh, before the automobile, police departments were pretty sparse. Um, there was not a huge kind of superstructure of, of managing, you know, all the different police stations and everything. It might be a handful of guys mm -hmm. who are just kind of patrolling the streets, looking out for people starting fights. I mean, it's very obvious yeah. 
when somebody's breaking the law and they're not in a car. It's a lot easier. You're stealing something. You're starting a fight. You're you're brandishing a firearm. Mm-hmm. Like you're doing something that is obviously antisocial. Mm-hmm. And the police can step in and say, hey, what are you doing? It's a lot easier they're going to cart you off or you're going to stop what you're doing. It's a lot easier to be a beat cop in that traditional walkable urban development because you can walk. Yeah. You know, you can't be a beat you cop. talk to the neighbors. In you, you have the neighbors in the porch. You seen anything going on lately? Yeah. yeah. And so what happened when, when the, with the introduction of the car was that now you, you need a new legal framework to ensure the safety of, of everyone. But at the same time, you're seeing everyone who is driving is now becoming a lawbreaker totally. at an astounding level. You're, you're introducing something, you know, it's pretty easy to say, okay, public drunkenness is outlawed. Yeah. Okay, you see one or two public drunkards and they get carted off and kept in the tank for a little while and they sober up and they go home. Mm-hmm. But now everyone is violating traffic laws mm-hmm. because when you get in a car, you there's a certain sense of entitlement that comes with that. It's like, I have somewhere to be. Yes, yes. The speed limit says 30 miles an hour, but this road is wide open. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go 50. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to quote this book at length. Um, Towns and cities ran into an enforcement problem. Everybody violated traffic laws. Noncompliance was not a new phenomenon, but violations of the rules of the road presented a different quandary for two reasons. First, drivers included respectable people, and their numbers were growing every year. Second, traffic lawbreaking resulted in tremendous damage, injury, death, and those numbers were increasing every day. It soon became clear that the public's interest in street and highway safety required more policing. This meant that everyone became subject to discretionary policing. Mm -hmm. So what happened before the automobile was that lawbreaking was was obvious, and you didn't really need a warrant to go after a public drunken. Because you were responding to a visible... It's there. You see him. But in a car, you don't really know what's going on inside of a car. Mm -hmm. It's a private space operating on a public road. And so police now need, in order to enforce the law properly, actually need discretion to operate outside of the traditional warrant system. And so this is where you get the, um, oh, what's the phrase? Search and, uh, no, no, no. It's a search and seizure. <laughs> Basically, um, all you really need to pull somebody over is the slight indication that there might be some law breaking going on. Gotcha. And so now everybody, everybody's private space becomes subject to public policing in a way that it really had never been done before. Right. Um, and what that does is it puts police at odds with communities in a very real way. I mean, most people, the vast majority of people, that your, your interaction with a police officer is going to be at a traffic stop. Mm-hmm. And you get into this whole thing of, officer, why are you pulling me over? You're now at odds with the person who is tasked with enforcing the laws that you know, at least in theory, are for your own safety and Mm -hmm. for the good of the community. But now everybody is subject to it. Yes. The Um, the surveillance regime expands, but then also the, you think about the, everyone's education, right? Your mm -hmm. first experience of a police officer as a child is him pulling over your mom. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So there's a, there's a new emphasis now as people grow up within these societies of, uh, policing as, um, everyone kind of being under the presumption of criminality and then the police having a um, corresponding all-access pass to 
human life. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the road system, um, did more than Foucault's panopticon could ever have really, not his panopticon, but, um, it kind of expanded, um, surveillance mm-hmm. as a as a way of policing whereas before as you mentioned it's really a responsive policing the thing yeah. happens you respond as opposed to presumptive policing where it's like okay this is going to happen at a certain rate and we're going right. to police it at a certain rate and then at that point um you've basically established a a zero-sum game it seems between the policed and the police uh, and it strikes me that It strikes me that the car really is an expansion of the private space. And I want Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. speak a little more of it um, in terms of that. But I think this is actually a good spot because we've probably gone on for a little bit (laughs) to to, uh, make by executive decision an episode break, call it Cars Part 1. Um, where we've spoken a bit about the development of the automobile and sort of summarize, summarize what happened here and then um, move on in a, in a further discussion. So the automobile, while an invention drawn up out of God's good creation, has created the world in its image and has created a kind of people who are now as driven by the automobile as they are driving we're, we're now dependent upon it. Yep. It is not a tool of freedom. Yeah. It is a tool that we are increasingly having to enter into cash economies to support. Um, and, and just briefly, I want to, I want to talk about, I mean, where we stand today is that the cost of car ownership is just skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new car is I think approaching a thousand dollars a month after payments and insurance and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was doing some calculations the other day, depending on how long your commute is, you're spending eight to $20 per mile every month. So if you have a a 10 mile commute, you're spending $80 at least every month extra uh, to support that. It's forcing us into cash economies. It's amazing. And it's having real impacts on families. There's a study. I, I don't want to talk about it too Not long, yet. but it's just too good to. to okay, to so we'll, we've got the greatest we'll stuff it. coming up we'll in the tease next it. episode, uh, and it's this. There's there's studies about how car dependency has impacted families, yeah. and family sizes, and it's again using a technology to solve the issues of a previous technology while also creating new dependencies. That's right. That's right. So here at Nepality, we're all interested in the investigation of where our needs come from. And then ultimately to get to how we can limit our needs to those ones that the fulfillment of which really does help us to grow in holiness and to create social orders. And most importantly here, cities that ref- reflect the heavenly Jerusalem. So Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Not a road, but a journey. Um, And we're really excited to see you next time where we're going to get into the spiritual um, effects of the car on American life. God bless. Bye.